We've been instilled with tactics and training for battling enemies overseas, but we are not taught how to battle the ones within. When the combat zone becomes your comfort zone, what becomes of the home front? I'm Tom. And I'm Jen. Together, we're tackling tough topics to conquer whatever challenge you're facing, from your soft unit to your family unit, with our amazing lineup of guests, including special operators, field experts, and so much more. This isn't your typical cool guy podcast. Welcome to All Secure. Dr. Emily Nagoski is the award-winning author of the New York Times bestselling book, Come As You Are, and the Come As You Are workbook, and the co-author with her sister Amelia of the New York Times bestselling book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. She earned her master's in counseling and a PhD in health behavior, both from Indiana University, with clinical and research training at the Kinsey Institute. I'm going to tell you that I was riveted as she described the why and how to improve our relationship and sex life, finding joy in our world with practical ways to achieve it. I can't wait to share this one with y'all, so let's dive right in. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I have to tell you, Tom and I are geeking out a little bit because we've watched your TED Talks, your books. I first learned about you with Burnout, the book that you collaborated with your sister, and I think I've recommended that probably just as much as the body keeps the score at this point. So, damn. (laughs) (laughs) And now Come As You Are, which was recommended by our social media director. She's like, you've got to read this book. I'm like, I know who she is. I've learned about her through burnout. Yes. And that's so great. It's amazing. Um, I was just telling you that this book is going to be included in our special operations couple retreat workshop. We give out books and this is definitely making the cut. It's a oh, I love that so much. wonderful read and critical, I think, for men and women to read and to understand sexuality. So welcome and thank you so much for joining Tom and I. Thank you. You know, I just got an email from uh, the chief of a uh, fire team in a small town in the U.S. who wanted to include Come As You Are on the mental health library for all the firefighters. And he he wanted my help in like crafting an argument about why it was appropriate to have a sex book. Do you guys have a, a like a ready explanation for why a sex book is so very appropriate? You know, for- I can tell you. Yes. <laughs> when she, when Jim was like, "You need to burn through some of these TED talks," I'm like, oh, "Okay, I'll do this." You know, do my I started leaning in. Uh, the things that you're talking about are things we talk about. We aren't talking about sex. We're talking about the same psychological issues that people have when they can't perform. Or in anything in life. And so I kept leaning in going, oh my gosh, this is so connected to everything else we do. This is amazing. And oh, sex is a difficult issue with alpha males who are afraid of everything on the planet except being an alpha male. (laughs) And then having a sexual issue at home. And they're like, oh, I'm never talking about this ever. And so to get them to open up. And it's so common. And it's so very, very common that it's it's hard to get those leaders out on the dance floor to start dancing alone at first and bring the others out Mm -hmm. on the dance floor to have a good time. But- People like you are making mm-hmm. it um, easier and more understandable. Well, yes. And, and all right, yeah, yeah. Go on. I, let's I, put it this way. I Tom, still want to talk about the yeah, brakes and the gas, talk. man. Yeah, he, <laughs> he's know? obsessed with brakes. Oh, my God. He had pages and pages and pages of notes and went through many, many of your TED Talks, which I recommend folks to, to Google you and, and to listen to them. I do as well. That's why I think we both said there's no way we can get through everything we need to get through today. Hopefully, we can talk you into coming back yeah. Um, and speaking with us. One thing about Come As You Are is it is 100,000 words long. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's it's one of those books that you start reading and you've got to pause. Like, you want to absorb the information. It's not just, you know, you want to flip through it quickly. You're like, oh, there's a lot of light bulb moments, I guess you could say with it. And you want to digest that and take it in. So for me, it's been one of those books that I'll pick up, maybe read 10, 12 pages go, holy shit, I've got to call a girlfriend about this. <laughs> uh-huh. And then I'll, I'll come back to it tomorrow. But, you know, Tom and I, we had a talk that was like, you know, the military called it like PTS resiliency. And nobody would come. Like four people would come to hear us talk. And I don't blame them because I didn't want to go to that talk either. When we changed it to how to conquer the battlefield in the bedroom, the room was full. So sex is definitely... And the first thing I would tell them, I go, you guys are suckers because the talk is exactly the same and now you're all here and it'll cover the same topics anyway. That's amazing. Yeah. So sex is a big deal. And I 
one of the articles that I read, it started with something like we're asking the wrong question, which is why do couples stop having sex when we should be asking why do couples have sex? So I'd love to start there. Why even would we, right? Yes. <laughs> like we, maybe we have jobs to go to. Maybe we've got kids to raise. Maybe we've got household chores and other friends and family to spend time with. And God forbid, we just want to watch television and go to sleep. Like we have so many other things we could be doing with our time. Important, valuable things. Why would anyone close the door on all those other responsibilities and just turn toward their partner's erotic self and let their skins touch and rub and lick each other's genitals? And why? There must be something really important happening in order for it to be important enough to stop doing literally everything else that we have to do. And I I do want to normalize right up front that there are times when it drops off the priority list and it is not important enough to stop doing all the other things. The first year that a new child comes into your home, (laughs) not the year when sex is going to be like right up top, let's make sure we make time for that, right? Like there are times when it is less important than it is at other times. But there are a few things we know about the couples who do sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. And one of those main things is they prioritize sex. They decide that it does matter. That they stop doing these other things and just turn toward each other's erotic selves. When I ask people the question, what is it that you want when you want sex? And a different question, what is it that you like? When you like sex, their answer, the first answer for so many people, the most common answer is connection. It's not orgasm. People will flippantly be like, I want to have an (laughs) orgasm. Well, you can do that by yourself. Like, go for it if you want to. Not everybody can have an orgasm, not an orgasm by themselves. But for a lot of people, orgasm is a thing that you have access to all on your own. So what is it that you want when you want someone else to participate voluntarily? And because they like it and they like you. And connection is the main thing. Fortunately, pleasure is number two. It feels good. So sharing pleasure with this other person whom you have chosen turns out to be so important that we will stop doing everything else and just do that. Yeah, I know prioritize. we do. <laughs> <laughs> I know we do. We brag about it. I mean, we don't brag about it. Hey, walk down the street, tell people, but... <laughs> We talk a lot about issues and yeah. how hard it was. And I've, I've been through marriages where the sentence was, sex isn't everything, like every night when I'm begging for it for years, when I finally give up. And, you know, to where I'm with someone where we're so connected. And everything that you talked about and everything I listened to that you were talking about on stage was was what we are. We're friends. We're close. We're, we, we're mm-hmm. attracted to each other yeah, and we prioritize friends. it. And I'll tell you what. It makes a big difference and people notice, people see it and, and our relationship is better yeah. for it, for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. You said you talked about that in your in your that friendship and priority. Yeah. Fr- so friendship means that you like and admire <laughs> each other and have deep trust. One of the things that I'm getting clear about when I talk about this subject is it's not just that you admire each other and you like each other. You admire your relationship mm. and you like your relationship. Like you look at the other couples and you're like, glad I'm not those guys, <laughs> boy. You're like, we really have something amazing here. Like, look at us go. So that when it becomes difficult, you're like, this is really worth fixing. It's worth doing hard work. It's worth confronting something difficult. It's worth something I was taught I should feel ashamed about because this is worth it. Because this thing we have, it is special and so much better than what most people get. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure we keep this. That's the friendship part. How do you how, how do you talk to people? And I almost said, how do you sell it to people? But I mean, what <laughs> you're selling a wonderful product. <laughs> how do you talk to people who are like, ah, and they cover their ears. My daddy and my mommy said not to, you know, and then they, they're totally shut down to even the conversation. I mean, I, I've never run into like many, taboo, like sex is like, taboo. Yeah, oh, I'm, I come from a religious family, or my father was a preacher, or just my parents were very strict and oh, sex is like, ugh, gross. Don't talk about it. I mean, that's as an adult after being raised as a child that way. Yeah, you got to put the effort in to overcome that, right? I mean, yeah, my audience tends to be the people who may have been raised that way, but are at a point where they're exploring because they decided they have permission to do what they want with their adult lives, or things have gotten so bad that they feel stuck and trapped and they are willing to try anything, even 
somebody like me. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing, though. Who, like, stands on a TED stage with blue hair, talking about research, sciencey nerd stuff, and also talking about how important an erotic connection can be for the people for whom it's important. It is not important for everyone. It's not important all the time. But when it's important, wow, it can make such a difference. One of my most, like, I love the science. Like, my specialty as a sex educator is, like, science! I love it so much! (laughs) You don't get a PhD if you don't love the science, right? <laughs> right. That's true. It's a little effort, little effort there. <laughs> but it turns out basically the most important part of my work is that I can stand up and use genital words and talk about arousal, orgasm, pleasure, desire, gender stuff, licking people's genitals and talk about it like I'm just talking about making yeah. dinner. That like, look, it's possible to have these conversations and feel about them as if they are just like, you know, a regular part of life. This says so much about fear and the unknown. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we're fearful of things we don't understand. So we always talk about being more curious and less judgmental, leaning into things, right? That judgment of things instantly shut down whatever you just heard because you're being judgmental versus curiosity. Like, huh? Oh, yeah. The, oh. The, yeah. The bro- I love, oh God. Okay. I'm going to go out of, out of order here. <laughs> I want to send you guys my new book. So I'm working on a book. It's about uh, sexual connection over the long term. Mm. No matter what your relationship structure is, no matter the genders of the people involved, uh, the whole third part is about curiosity. Really? As the solution to all the problems that you could be confronting and as the doorway into the kind of expansive ecstasy that you hear Sting talk about. But you're like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to experience that. Curiosity is the key. What, Curiosity. What do you mean floating through space in a tunnel when you're having sex? I'm like, I don't know what I mean, but I was out in orbit, you know, <laughs> when I have sex sometimes. I we're, we're, We get done sometimes. I'm like, what was that? Like, what What was yeah. that? Yeah, I think we had a moment where we like, both said that I was that in outer space. <laughs> I don't know. Not that I wasn't thinking <laughs> of you, but I wasn't here. I'll tell you that. I was somewhere we else. Somewhere else um, together. Yeah, you dissolved. Yes. Yeah. Into each other and just into the cosmos. Truly. May I recommend to you one of my favorite books called Magnificent Sex. It's what a good title, right? Right. Magnificent Sex by Peggy Klein-Plotz and Dana Maynard. It is about the optimal sexual experiences research. So Peggy and her team interviewed dozens of people, very diverse people who self-identified as having extraordinary sex lives. So first of all, what the heck is extraordinary sex as they define it? And it's that. That feeling of like, I'm here deeply with you and I am also everywhere at once. Yeah. Like I am the whole universe and you are the whole universe and we are each other. That sort of experience. What do you suppose is the typical first age at which people experience extraordinary sex? Mm. According to the wow. research. I, I would go lower than I think because I, yeah, I, know, I get I'm in trouble giving a younger 35. answer. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, To me, I would think it would it would take maturity and 55, comfort. Yeah. Yeah. 55? 55. I did it Holy. this year. Wow. <laughs> All right. We're early achievers. Congratulations. Holy. Yeah. 55. And that's just like the typical first age. And, and why yeah. is that, do you think? Oh, for so many reasons. <laughs> I, a lot of it, though. And the interviews with the research participants delve into like, so how do you get to be a person who has this yeah. in your life, particularly if it's not what you had early in your life? And I have to tell you, one of the main reasons was the third factor that characterizes couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. So one was friendship. One was prioritizing sex. And the third one is liberating yourself from the gender binary. Mm, yeah. Which sounds like big and a lot and potentially controversial, but it really just means on the day you were born, you were given a script of how to be a person. And a whole lot of that script was dependent on the shape of your genitals. So some people have the script where they're supposed to grow into what Amelia, my sister and I call human givers, Mm. where they have a moral obligation to be, here's the list, to be pretty, happy, Calm, yet generous, and attentive to the needs of others. Which group of people do you suppose get the human giver script? I think that would be us ladies. I think it might be the people with vulvas. Yes. The recent Harry Styles movie I watched. (laughs) (laughs) So there's human givers. And remember, this is a moral obligation. So if you Mm. fall short in any way for even a moment, you deserve to be punished. And if there's no one around to punish us, we'll just go ahead and beat the crap out of ourselves. Right. Sounds accurate. And then on the... If you have the, it's a boy style of genitals, 
somebody's going to give you a script for being a human winner. Oh. Where your job is to be strong, confident. You're at, you have access to three total emotions. You have permission to be angry. <laughs> yep. You have permission to feel winning and horny. Dang. And that's it. So you don't have that. So if you have a feeling like, God forbid, loneliness. Wow. And you're like, okay, my choices are angry, winning, or horny. And you're like, okay, so horny seems like the closest fit to lonely. So I'm going to approach my partner for sex, making it about horny, when actually it's about the lonely that I feel. And my partner's like going to be having a hard day. That has nothing to do with me. They're just having a hard day. And they're like, I really just not tonight. Love you so much. Can't tonight. And your partner feels like they're declining sex because horny. And inside, the human winner is like, you are rejecting my loneliness, my sense of isolation. And the partner has no idea because a human winner is not given access to language that says, I feel isolated and I'm longing for connection with you. And one of the ways that's really important for me to get access to that sense of connection is through erotic touch. Wow. Like if your partner said that instead, if you're a human giver, well, so like there's a lot of really toxic dynamics that can develop between a human giver and a human winner, right? If the human giver feels morally obligated to meet their partner's expectations and the human winner is like, horny is all I have to get access to all these basic fundamental human needs. Sex is not a drive, like nobody's going to die if they don't get laid, but connection is a drive. So there are all these people who are not allowed to express this. It's like if you're hungry and you are not allowed to talk about food, and so you talk about video games yeah. instead which now that I say it out loud is actually a thing that happens. <laughs> <laughs> like you're talking about one thing, but it's the language that you have access to trying to express this other bigger, deeper, I'm going to die if I don't get it feeling. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Completely and utterly. So the human giver is like, yes, fine. I will do what you want or need to make sure I meet your expectations, make sure your needs are being met. And the human winner Part of the toxicity that comes with the human winner script is that you're not allowed to make it look like there's something you don't already know about sex. Wow. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Wow. Dang. So that curiosity you were talking about before. <laughs> Holy crap. Man. If you can get people to be actively and publicly curious about sexuality, that is a major major moment for somebody when they can be like, there's something I could learn here. This is crazy. When you break things down, I love when people break things I down know, and make it simple too. in a way that you couldn't have done it, right? Without the years and years of studying and then figuring out, oh, here's how to say this in a way that somebody can understand it. Yeah. So many people have that, right? And it's the, it's lack of communication or improper communication based on everything we were taught. I, I tell so yeah. many people, um, we work with a lot of closed off people, just the way we were raised, the way with it, you know, the life that we entered into. And then we're out now and, and, and a lot of veterans sitting around like, I hate everybody. I'm going to move to Montana, you know, and clear off a field and live by myself. Yeah, running away from problems. I'm like, yeah, you in Montana with the lowest mental health care in, in the United States and <laughs> the distance between medical facilities. And you're out there alone with your problems because you don't you don't move from your problems. They move with you. And just, oh, just yeah. please understand that you may not know everything in the world already. There might be something you haven't been taught that might be counter to what you were taught. Yeah. And guess what? It might be true. <laughs> and what you've been taught might be untrue. Open to things like that would, you know, opening up the curiosity helps people understand and takes yeah. the pressure off of, I already know everything. One thing that I know helps with people to allow them to become curious openly is to recognize a lot of times when we're trying to follow the rules that we were taught about how to be a person, how to do relationships, we feel like failures because it's not working. Because all those rules we were taught are not the way things actually work. Like none of that is true. We were lied right. to. So if people can explore the idea that it's not that they're failing, it's that they were taught a bunch of complete lies about how things are supposed to work. It is just not possible to get through life without expressing sadness to another human being. Right. right. It is it is not possible to live a healthy life without connection to other people. I am 
a very strong introvert on the spectrum. And even I need connection with other people. You know what? That's us. <laughs> yes. And we watched on your TED Talk, you said the keys were confidence, joy, and now we know curiosity. What I love mm-hmm. that you said is that confidence is knowing what is true and joy right. is loving what is true. I yeah. mean, I had goosebumps. I think she started crying. <laughs> I think <laughs> I started I'd probably crying when cry a lot up. during your TED Talks. But <laughs> and joy is the hard part, right? Right. Right. And especially I feel like in our community of special operations where there's so much trauma and secondary trauma. And you talk about to have great sex, you create this safe, sexy place. But how how does trauma then play when your life doesn't feel very safe? And then you try to get intimate in this place of low trust and low affection and high stress, which are the opposites of what you say we need to create. You're in survival mode. Yes. Right. Yeah. Correct. So let's talk about the brakes and the accelerator. Yay. Yay. <laughs> so, and the little the little jelly bean in the brain is like, I like that. Or I don't like that. I'm like, I love this. I love everything you laid yeah. out. Oh my. There is a little jelly bean in your brain. Uh, it's actually spread out over lots and lots of different jelly beans in your brain. But basically, it's called the dual control model. And it's called the dual control model because it has two parts. And the first part is a sexual accelerator, which notices all the sex-related information that's coming in. So this is everything in your external senses, everything you see, hear, smell, touch, or taste that your brain codes as sex-related. It's also anything that you think, believe, or imagine Mm. that your brain codes as sex-related. It's also any internal body sensations that your brain codes as sex-related. Like, do you feel the tingling in your genitals? That's a sex-related stimulus. It's going to go up and hit the turn-on signal that many of us are familiar with. And fortunately, at the same time, we have a set of brakes, the other system, that are noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now, which is, it's the same thing. Everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, think, believe, or imagine, it's also all of your internal sensations, right? So if your brain, it's called, uh, you probably know about neuroception, which is uh, your awareness of your brain sense of safety. When a person is living with PTSD, small things can activate big survival (laughs) responses. And that is part of the context in which your brain is processing information. So it sort of doesn't matter how much stimulation you're giving the accelerator. You can be doing all the things. If other things are hitting the brakes, it kind of like if you try to drive while you were hitting both the accelerator and the brakes at the same time. Yeah, that's exactly where I feel half the time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you might get where you want to go, right? But it will take a lot more energy. It will take a lot longer and people are going to get frustrated. And also you could cause damage to the instrument itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So when people are struggling with arousal, desire, orgasm, pleasure, sometimes it's because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator. But often, especially in the case where there's a mental health diagnosis involved, it's because there's too much stuff activating the brakes. And it's getting rid of the stuff that hits the brakes that's going to free the accelerator to do its job. And how do you do that? <laughs> yeah. How do you make the kids go away? How do you get the kids <laughs> out of there? You, yeah, yeah. Set the mood. And- I get some of it as kids <laughs> yeah. in life. But when, you're, when your own sense of safety and security is, you know, constantly you're in fight, flight, or freeze. And then, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you're back from a deployment and the wife's like, or, you know, partner, whoever it may be, is like, hey, let's go. You've been gone for six months, you know, eight months, and the other person's still in survival mode, how do you get back to intimacy? Your body's totally sure you're being chased by a lion all the time. Is being chased by a lion a good time to stop everything else you're doing and have sex? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) We have to kill the lion first. (laughs) Right. That's the thing. You have to slaughter the lion first. And then you can, alas, we live in a world where we're almost never literally chased by lions. Our stressors are not the kinds of things that when we deal with them, it will actually deal with the stress itself. There's a reason why my first book was about sex and the second book was about stress. So we live in a world where our stressors, there has to be a separation. There are different processes, dealing with the things that actually activate your stress and dealing with the stress itself. With PTSD, the simplest way I know to describe it is you were chased by a lion 
you never got any feedback from your body or from the world that the lion was not chasing you anymore. Or the lion chased you for so long and so intensely that no matter what feedback you got about the lion being gone, your brain's like, I'm pretty sure the safer bet is just to keep believing that I am being chased by a lion, right? Yeah, I think that's where we're at. There's definitely a lion behind us at all times now for a lot of people I know. exactly. And it's a perfectly reasonable experience for your brain to have when your life is in danger a lot, right? Right? That makes total sense. And just intellectually knowing that you're safe now doesn't help at all. You cannot tell yourself out of the stress response. You can't be like, but I'm safe now, but I'm safe now. Because your body's like, no, man, nope. Not going to fool me. So the thing to do in order to reduce the way that stress could be activating the brakes, you have to deal with the stress itself because the stressor's gone. Let's imagine that in this scenario, the stressor is actually gone. The person is safe now. Their body is a safe place for them to be. So now they need to do stuff that communicates to their body that they are safe, to give it relentless feedback. And when you're being chased by a lion, a literal actual lion, what do you do? You run. You Uh, run. run. (laughs) I'm going to knock a slower person over, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Survive. So when when you experience like a stress response activation in response to like the wrong kind of sound or the wrong smell or the wrong person, what do you do? Yeah, I'm right back to the situations when I do. If I smell bleach, I'm right back in Somalia 93. If I see something on the side of the road, I'm in Iraq and I'm avoiding an an IED. And then I laugh about it. Like, what did I just do that for? It's been 20 years, you know, and it's, it's, but every now and then that thing is still there. Yeah. What do you do? You're being chased by a lion. What do you do? I just run, run, run. It doesn't matter that it's 20 years ago. You literally physically move your body. People are all like, physical activity is really good for your mental health. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why is physical activity good for your mental health? Because it is the single most efficient strategy to communicate from your body up to your brain that you have escaped the lion. I did a thing. Look, I did it. Even there, because the lion has been gone for however long, you can move your body and you're like, see, I did it. Even if it's like jumping jacks, it doesn't have to be actual little running. It could be, it can be lying in your bed and just tensing up every muscle that you have hard, hard, hard for a slow count of 10. Keep going. And even though it's beginning to hurt and your muscles are like, I would really like to stop right now. You keep it really, really tense. And then you go, (sighs) and you flop. Mm. Just that amount of using your body will skim off the worst of the physiological stress right now until you gradually drain away the accumulated, built-up, activated stress responses that you never had a chance to complete. We call it completing the stress response cycle. I started using this language after I learned about somatic experiencing and psychomotor therapies and all the body-based therapies that I think are so much more promising than talk therapy for a lot of trauma, especially combat trauma. Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, he's been through, I don't know, maybe nine different treatments now and, and different things that have really pushed the ball forward in physical activity and moving. It's so interesting you say that is such a part of that release of that energy, of that pent-up energy. And and I can't imagine, I mean, We have people reach out all the time, these guys who are muscular and built and society's told them they're strong and they're supposed to have sex three times a day. And they're like, I love my wife, you know, life is good, but I can't perform. And they tell themselves these stories that they're broken and they're not even relating PTS as part of the situation that's happening. They don't even realize. And that's the beginning. Because then the story gets worse in your own head. And then it's like, I don't even want sex because if I try it, I'll fail at it. So I don't even want it anymore, you know? And and that's my life because I'd rather live a lie than look wrong. You know, I'm like sad. Yeah. Let's talk about the strong people for whom physical activity has not done anything. It just locks them up tighter. Mm. So my sister (laughs) was getting a doctorate in music, which is very much the same. It's not. It's not the same. (laughs) (laughs) But... She, 
you know, exercised on the elliptical machine five days a week because she's a good girl who does what she's told and everybody said exercise is good for her. But it wasn't doing anything to help her body release stress like it was supposed to. We're identical twins raised in the same household. Physical activity has always been an automatic, like I know for sure if I just get on my bike, if I just get on the road, I put on my shoes, I'm going to feel better at the end of it, no matter how reluctant I am right now. But Amelia is like, I have never had a like post-exercise good feeling. I'd just be tired and sweaty. So then I taught her this really important strategy of using your imagination. Mm. We know that imagination can activate a stress response, right? Sure. For sure. Because you just start thinking about things and you start sweating and your heart starts racing and like, y'all know that part. The imagination can also end a stress response cycle. So she got on the elliptical machine like usual. And instead of like watching TV or reading a magazine, she imagined herself as Godzilla. Nice. Stomp on the state land grant institution where she's just trying to get a doctor of musical arts in the parking lot in the bursar's office. And at the end of that workout, combining the movement of her body with imagining herself destroying (laughs) her enemy in this cartoonish, silly way, at the end of that workout, she felt elated Mm. and powerful and ready for anything. So if connecting to your body directly is not what works for you, and there are lots of different reasons why that might be. The thing, your intermediary is your own imagination. So I always imagined, do you remember the orange fuzzy monster from the Bugs oh, Bunny yeah. cartoon? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bugs Bunny yes. gives him a, a, a manicure. Yeah. <laughs> that was always my like, I'm running away from the orange monster from the Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> and I run home in my imagination. In real life, I'm just like running on a treadmill or I'm on a machine or I'm running in my neighborhood with my dog. But in my imagination, I'm running away from the orange monster. <laughs> And I run home. And when my body gets there, I have done a thing. I have used my body. I have proven to my brain that, look, I can do something. I can escape. I, I want to bring so up powerful. for all the little commandos out there listening that are big warriors around the world that listen to this right now um, and, are, and are thinking bullshit, right? I want. I like to bring the other side in. I mean, I do have a shit ton of science behind <laughs> that, but cool. Well, yes, nobody's going to listen to science. They, they they need to hear these these words. These next words. I love up. science. I know. They're sitting there going, "This is bullshit." I feel bad. I'm thinking. <laughs> well, apply it this way. Like we've applied the same thing. I've sat there in classes to train and envisioned myself shooting a, a perfect score on the target or shooting or doing my job perfectly. And a lot of people do that. Athletes do it before they do something. So it's the same thing. So when people it's laugh, the same thing. I bring them over and go, it's the same thing, Dang. shithead. Think about it. Quit <laughs> laughing at it. Be curious and, and connect the two. You already have the tools. Yes. Professional basketball players, half of them actually practice shooting hoops. Yes. Half of them just really vividly imagine shooting hoops. They both get equally yep. better. That's, amazing, that's what I wanted to bring after everybody. Our imaginations are really intensely powerful. We always talk about it. Our brains actually don't know the difference between doing something in the real world and really vividly imagining doing it. There's a reason that you do visualizations. Yes. Is that a way to get you back in the bedroom then? Like imagining sex in a positive way. You know, if you're struggling, if you've had issues coming back together, either because of the distance of deployments, you haven't seen each other in six months um, and you change. Why do you think people read romance novels? (laughs) Well, that's true. What about the ones who didn't? I, I How about the ones but... who made fun of everybody reading them but went home angry? <laughs> Why do you think people watch yeah, porn? Okay, there you go. So but you that's can illegal imagine. too. That's illegal <laughs> on the servers overseas. But I, I know that I was in charge. Oh, of, is that? Yeah, <laughs> but I was in charge. And I, once a week, I'd have to go clean the servers <laughs> off. I'm like, guys, you're killing the computers here. Okay, so I had to go scrub it. And then it, one week later, it'd be full again. I'm like, yeah, you got 10,000 guys over here. That's how important yeah. sex is. Yes. It was burning down the internet. <laughs> <laughs> loading up videos and clogging up, you know, missions. But yeah, it's it is that. It's important. so much cheaper just to use your imagination. But you know what? Yeah. Hey everyone, if you like what you're hearing, please like, comment, and share. And if you'd like to support our amazing warriors and their families, please donate at allsecurefoundation.org. Thanks for listening, everyone. So you can imagine yourself in a healthy relationship. And that could be part of, I always hear the erotic zone starts in, in your head. I don't know. You're the sexpert. So you tell us what, what? Yes. The, the brain is the most important sex organ. You're what your largest sex organ. Any guesses? Well, I know for me. <laughs> oh Lord. <laughs> it's not my brain. It's your skin. <laughs> your skin. 
What? Oh. Largest yes. sex Large organ. Sex it's organ. all over you. That's true. Skin is the largest. Brain is the most mm. important. And part of your context, so context is made of two things. I'm always talking about how important context is for our ability to even experience pleasure in the first place. Context is both your internal state and your external circumstances. And people generally begin their assessment of their context with their external circumstances. Like, I'll tell you a story about a couple who went on vacation in Greece every year and they rented the same very, very old uh, home and they would always have great vacation sex. And then one year that house was not available and they were like, that's fine. We'll just rent a different one and no great vacation oh. sex for them. And they were like, why? And they really thought creatively and curiously non, they weren't like, there must be something wrong with you. There must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with our relationship. They were like, there must be something wrong with this context. Mm. What is it that's going on at that other house that wasn't happening at this house? And they thought really carefully about it. And they were like, oh, in this old Mediterranean house, the stone house, the bed is built into the wall. So there is no squeaking noise for our three kids (laughs) to hear. It's this very simple external circumstances insight that they could get to because they weren't worried Mm. and blaming each other. To begin with. So sometimes there are very easy, simple ways to look at the external context and make a change. Or there are some external circumstances that like you cannot change. The fact is those children have to sleep in your house. <laughs> they got to get used to the squeaking noises. You know, we brought up. We, <laughs> yeah, learn to sleep through it. We brought up porn and, and people watching it. I mean, I guess it'd be good to bring up porn issues of watching too much porn and the expectations of sex at home. And how that's yeah, okay. You, I'm not gonna. You might know what I'm gonna say. Yeah, like we're I want to hear. We're not gonna go down that road, you know. <laughs> Let's go down that road. Yes. Let's. Because it's immediately relevant to all the things that I've been saying. So, porn itself is not inherently one thing or another. It's your relationship with porn that makes the difference in whether it's like additive mm. to your life or detractive. And one of the things that happens. So, let's say. You're this like masculine, strong guy. You want sex. And also there's all this like conflict in your relationship and difficulty. And you have some like feelings about your own body and safety and all kinds of things with your partner. And so instead of addressing those issues with your partner with whom you would like to have sex, you go into your den and close the door and watch porn. Mm. And suddenly you feel like you are addicted to porn. Because it is the way you need that. You crave it because it is the only way that you can have even an imaginary experience of erotic connection with another person. That is so interesting. Does it take away from your abilities to connect? Not in the long term. I've heard so much that, you know, porn takes away because you expect your partner to do that and then they don't. They can't. And you're watching crazy porn. And then you go back and you're like, well, everything else is boring. So if you watch porn, like it's education. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is like trying to watch NASCAR as driver ed. <laughs> Those are professionals yeah. on a closed course with a pit crew. There is nothing about that experience that is representative of the actual oh like God. human experience of engaging sexually. So if you're watching porn and you're learning like this is what sex is, this is how sex works, this is what's supposed to happen sexually, when you go to have sex with a human person, uh, it will surprise you when that is not actually how it works. They're having sex in positions that look really interesting on camera. Yeah. <laughs> like, so that they can yes. get what I call the meat and potatoes shot. Some of those are impossible. I've tried. We, yeah, mm. some of that just doesn't happen. They do. They're professionals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like Olympic they stretch athletes. before they start real. or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and they're being paid really well. Sometimes. Sometimes they're not being paid well. It's a whole other conversation. I actually think more harm is done to the performers who are not getting access to safe, healthy, well-compensated work conditions. Right. Yeah. But again, that's, yeah. A, that's a whole other thing. The, the damage it does to humans is it teaches them a bunch of things that are not true about how sex actually works with human beings. And it gives them a kind of stimulation that doesn't have anything to do with being with their actual partner. Uh. So all it takes to restore whatever changes happen to a person's sexuality because they've been watching a lot of porn and they've been disengaged from their relationship is to stop watching a lot of porn and re-engage 
with your relationship. Right. Put your work back in where where it's lacking. Priorities. I mean, honestly, we talk about, about priorities priority. and everything. People who struggle at home just in a relationship, not even talking about sex, just the relationship at home are typically the people who are spending more time elsewhere at work. Whether you're a CEO, a salesman, a, a military cop, whatever it is, you're not home. You're there, you're studying, you're teaching, you're working, but you're not at home. When you get home, you're tired and you want to go to sleep. So you don't put in the effort at home. So a lot of what we do is you're going to have to reevaluate this, this, this balance system needs to shift if you're not happy. And you're going to have to put in because right. a relationship is work. You have to put in work yeah. and effort into it to make it grow. And it's true that like you have to put in effort yes. to sustain a relationship in the same way you have to put in effort to sustain a garden. Like it doesn't <laughs> just stay that way. You had to make it in the first place. You're going to have to work on it to make sure it stays the same. But what if it's a hobby instead? Mm. What if it's a thing that the two of you have as a shared interest, the way you have a shared interest in if you've got kids or if you have a shared favorite sports team or you have like Dungeons and Dragons, whatever your hobby is that you like invest your emotions in and you collaborate with and it gives you a sense of connection with the other person and it's fun. It's a hobby. I, can can a relationship be like your favorite hobby? Yes. I now have a hobby. You just changed my whole language. No, I have it's a hobby. It's no longer our relationships work. It's our relationship is our hobby. And there are times when it is more difficult yes. than others. Yeah. yeah. When you're like, oh, these weeds, I just cannot get rid of these <laughs> yes. weeds. And you can like gripe together yeah. about the weeds. But when you gripe about the weeds, you're not griping about your, you're not complaining about your partner. You're not criticizing yourself. You're just saying there's this mm. third thing, this enemy that we share. Yeah. That if we collaborate, we're going to be able to fix this situation. But like the weeds. How do you begin to talk about that safely? So if I'm feeling really insecure because our sex life is taking a dip or what he is, how do you approach your partner where you're not feeling like you're not doing this? The, you know, the pointing fingers and the blame. Yeah. And I know you start sex with the be- story I'm telling myself is. <laughs> <laughs> right, but you you read the collective works of Brene Brown. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it works. About vulnerability and authenticity. <laughs> uh and step number 1, uh the like super not politically correct thing that you do is you talk to your partner like they are your superhero. Mm. Like everything they do is amazing and right. Like we are like our relationship is so amazing and I love you so much. I admire all these specific things about you. I remember this time you did this. I remember we had this experience and I know that not everything is perfect, but because things are so good, I want to see how far we can go. Like I want to, I, I trust you enough and I admire you enough that I believe that if we work together on this, even the stuff that's like really hard and I'm like even afraid to say it out loud. I feel like we could make changes with that and I don't even know how good it can get if we do that. I have goosebumps. You do that to me. <laughs> Keep it really real positive. Yeah. Rather than bringing a complaint. Mm. Like a conversation that starts with you ejaculated too soon last night <laughs> is not a conversation that is going to continue <laughs> for any time. <laughs> Yeah, we always talk about well, that. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> what are we having for dinner? <laughs> we always talk about the context of, of how you, yes. you know, it, it, I've heard a lot about it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And with a lot of veterans and, and struggling kindness, individuals, kindness, it's kindness, the same kindness, thing, right? Kindness. The delivery, your delivery sucks. Yeah. And um, that's the hard thing yeah. to overcome because I would argue it for a long time. This is normal me. I'm not yelling. You know, this is normal me. And then look, I'd get this. I'm going to record you one day and would fight about that, you know, because nobody wants recorded. But I look back and I'm like, I was so uh, resistant Mm -hmm. to change like everyone else is. And I just I just didn't see it. I I couldn't see it because I don't know if I didn't want to see it. I've been taught so much in another way and it's harder And finally loosening up and opening up. And now I'm doing the same thing. Listen, people. So what convinced you? You know, I got compassion and empathy back. And that started everything for me. Huh. I, I didn't have it um, through constant love from her. Just uh, when we met and she was so kind. I wasn't used to that. Oh, that gave me goosebumps. It, it was, I, I was pushing her away because of the, what do you want? Nobody's this nice to anybody unless they want something. I mean, I'm talking about my previous marriage. I, I, marriage is. I, and then I, then I, she brought the awareness of, what's the common denominator in your previous marriages? And I was like, hmm, well, they, and they, wait a minute common denominator oh me (laughs) i'm the only one that's always there and and so i started looking inward 
you know, and I, and I started thinking about, well, I started loving myself a little more, which meant I could love others and have more compassion for others. So I, you know, I went from zero yeah. compassion and everyone, you got yourself into your own issues. Shut up to, wow, I could feel for you now, you know, and, and get, got past my own trauma, yeah. but it, it took a long time. The fact that you could start by loving yourself and that made it easier for you to be gentle and generous and loving with other people shows me that you actually had a really good foundation of mental health to begin with that got eroded through experience and you found your way back to it. People who have, for example, intense early childhood experiences of trauma, neglect, and abuse, when they begin to practice self-compassion, it actually activates the fear centers in their brain. Oh, it's good to know. So self-compassion feels threatening for people with early life experiences of trauma. I want to dive into that because we have, I mean, everyone's like, the war, the war broke me, the war broke me, and 80, 90% of the people we- You might have been broken already, 80 to 90% of the people we talk to, childhood trauma, untreated, undiagnosed, and then they finally go back to it and figure it out. You put yourself into the military on top of that stuff, and it's just going to heighten it and exacerbate it and harden it. And a lot of the military draws from that. So it becomes, it's like, you know, when you let a cooking pan sit overnight without cleaning it, like it gets crusty and so much more difficult to clean. Yes. So you got to let it soak. Yes. You got to let it soften. And that takes time and patience and yes. awareness and, yeah. and all of those things. And patience takes a willingness to believe that you are worth that time. Yeah. And the awareness of, you know, the awareness of all of that just helps so many people of, open up. You know, it wasn't the military. It wasn't this. Just open up, listen up and, and let it in. And when you're raised that way, and I wasn't, I was raised in a, in a, a, great a, a normal to me. I don't know, yeah. you know, normal. I'm in the middle somewhere. I wasn't, we weren't rich. We weren't, well, we weren't, yeah, yeah we were lower middle class, but we had each other. We had family and and then, and then I lost it. You know, the other people that come in, that's who the military draws from. The people who are needy, the people might've been abused. A lot of them, are, yeah, a lot of trauma is entering the military. And yeah, so we, we have to get them to consider that is is hard part for us um, to get them to open yeah, up because they're like so I lost many, Bob, especially because they were strong enough to get yes. out. Yeah, they were strong enough to be as successful as they were in the military. I compare this to my dog barking at the mail delivery. <laughs> yes. She barks every single time, and every single time the mail truck goes away, <laughs> and so she's pretty sure that it's her barking <laughs> that makes the mail truck yeah. go away. So because you have been so strong and so shut down, closed off, rigid, just like power through it, you're like, that's why I have made it that far. That's why I got out. And maybe. And it might be that the patterns that helped you get out in the first place are not the patterns that are going to help you thrive for the rest of your life. Wow. You know, uh, you're you're talking about the door in your brain and hiding behind the door and how that door protects you. Another teary moment. Another teary moment. Grateful. (laughs) Yes. I love the shutdown place in a survivor's mind because it kept them safe and it got them here. And the fact that a person is here right now is the most important fact that can give everybody hope that it'll get better because you got this far. And you have this door and you can shine that light of like gratitude. And when you have that kindness, it will little, just a little bit crack open. And this like gush of golden light will come through that tiny little crack. And you'd be like, well, I'm not sure I'm ready to like go all the way through the door, but you can sit, like let it close again if it gets too much. And then like crack it open and like another gush of golden light shining out of all your like beauty just because you are alive on earth in this moment how do we address that yeah. that response to uh childhood or you know youth trauma where it self-compassion shuts them down how do how do you open them up to that um oh that is a really excellent question if self-compassion you try self-compassion and you're like nope which was me honestly i was like people i kept trying self-compassion self-compassion was evidence-based i should try self-compassion and like i made me hate myself wow <laughs> oh, shit so what the research says is if that's how a person is reacting to self-compassion have them do compassion for others first mm. because other people like your brain has not been taught for the first 5 years of your life that you do not deserve compassion but maybe it's acceptable to be like the stranger on the bus 
deserves compassion. Some of my friend deserves compassion. Uh, there's a, it's called metta meditation in Buddhist tradition, M-E-T-T-A. It's a loving kindness practice where you think about someone who really has cared for you and you think, may they be peaceful, may they be at ease. And then you think about somebody you only know a little bit, like a teacher or a coworker who you like, and you're like, may they be peaceful, may they be at ease, may they know love and compassion. And then you think about somebody, your barista, the guy who makes your coffee. You're like, may they be peaceful and at ease. May they know love and compassion. And then you think about something you actively dislike. Mm. Somebody who has tried to make your life worse. And you think, may they be peaceful and at ease. May they know love and compassion. And then you think about an actual enemy. And you think, may they be peaceful and at ease. May they know love and compassion. And then you think about the whole earth suspended in the galaxy with 8 billion humans on it. May we be peaceful and at ease. May we know love and compassion. And maybe then you can get to you. I am one of the 8 billion. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I know love and compassion. You know, you made me cry again. I, I'm one of those because <laughs> honestly, and, and Jen taught it to me. I, my first now, you know, act. I, I went to a soup kitchen and I started serving, you know, morning to lunch. And I was like, I'm not going. And those people, you know, they should have thought of that, whatever, you know, poor you. I'm sorry, you know, and I, and I didn't care. Yeah. And I went and it didn't take long to include everyone else serving that were in the halfway house at a prison serving with me. And I'm like, God, I got to hang out with these people, you know, and these people. Oh my goodness. The connection and the, and the connection I had with the people on the other side of the line, I was amazed at how similar and the same we were. And I and I it broke me, you know. And Jen's saying the same thing to me, you know. And she grew up; her her youth was not not good, you know. Her childhood was not good. My childhood was okay, you know. That's my adulthood was horrible. Her adulthood <laughs> yeah. was okay. Yeah. My PTS and your PTS were attracted to each other. I think. Yeah. I <laughs> yes. And it and it taught me yes. that it taught me that compassion of of others first, you know. And then she came in and just the same message you just said. She was pushing me that way, You're one of pushing them. me that way. And that's yeah. that's when I started feeling better. Yeah. There is a uh, so in yoga you say namaste to each other, um, and it gets translated into English often as something like the the universal in or the divine in me recognizes the universal or the divine in you. I think when we fall in love, it's like the dysfunctional family of origin in me recognizes the dysfunctional family of origin in you. And they, <laughs> so you, true. that person makes you resonate like a bell because they match what your childhood taught you is what love looks and feels like. And it's only because I have had 20 years of therapy, I have reshaped what my body recognizes as what love looks and feels like. So that when I met the person I ultimately married, who you've talked to, Rich, he's he's the best. And I like every time I look at him, I like I admire him and he's so cute and he's so funny and he's so nice. <laughs> and I go, I earned him. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. A little effort. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I earned him. I spent a lot of time crying in a therapist's <laughs> office being like, I will never have the family of origin that I was born deserving and that everyone is born deserving and I can be that adult caregiver for myself. <laughs> and then you end up finding somebody who like can can take care of you in all the ways that are healthy and good. Yeah. I love that. Amazing. It works. It does work. If you had I was always too mentally ill ever to serve in the military, <laughs> but I can still tell relevant <laughs> stories. Oh, you Once are Once you amazing. get in, you get the same way anyway. So, <laughs> And then they send you off. They send you out. It's like, see you later. Thanks for that. You know? And I was like, oh, what my, happened? 25 my, years of yeah. what? You know? I went in for four years to get college money. And, mm -hmm. and I blanked. And then 25 years later, I'm like, I don't know what happened. You know, you said stress makes sex the furthest thing from your thought process. Oh, yeah. So, that for 10 to 20% of people, stress can actually increase their interest in mm. sex. It won't necessarily mm. increase their pleasure. It probably won't increase now, their that pleasure. that might be our but percentage. But it can actually. That might be our percentage. <laughs> it might be you guys. Because I, I was my question was going to be, how do you tell a group of people who have, you know, you're talking about the breaks and the gas and, and the stress makes sex, you know, the furthest thing on your mind. I worked with a group of people who 
put on the gas when the brakes should have been put on. For years and years yeah. and years, you know, there's somebody inside that front door is going to shoot you. Hey, here we go with the gas pedal. Let's in. do this, man. I because and we're bragging about it. Watch this. Come on, and then I'm first. You know, and and then I get older. I can do this incredibly yeah. dangerous yeah. thing that under any real life yeah. circumstances I should run yeah. the heck away right now. So they're rewiring their brains. I rewired my brain, and then as I got older, yep. instead of being the number one guy, I'm like, well, okay, I'm in charge. I'll be number seven. You know, you let the first six go in and see what's up, but. <laughs> You know, and then, so the brakes and the gas, and then... And we call the first guy, we say they have grit. Yeah, yes. yeah. And we praise it and say that it's like, you just got to work really hard. There, there's the, the rule is number one man's always right. <laughs> so no matter <laughs> what they do, you got to go do opposite things and, and, and fix it. But all that stress, and then they come home and they cannot connect. Is it still, it's, to me, it's still all the same steps and processes. It seems harder. It seems like there's more junk in the way. But like everything else in life, we've narrowed it down to shooting and this and that. Be very good at the basics, right? Everybody wants the magic. Teach me the magic, but what I've always found out is the magic is the basics done well over and over and over again, the simple stuff. Yeah. If you have a little time, I want to tell you some science that's in the new book that I think you're going to like. Yeah, absolutely. So you come home and you're in a particular state because you were in that state when you were away. You come home, you walk in the door and you have that state with you. What I have learned from affective neuroscience is that we have these primary process emotions, these core emotions that I call like the rooms in your emotional floor plan. And they're basic emotions that you have heard of, right? Fear, anger, loneliness, which is immediately adjacent to grief, care, curiosity and exploration, play, and lust, Right? Very simple. You come home and you are in anger because you had to be in anger for a long time. And if you draw like a floor plan of how each of these rooms relate to each other, is the anger space in your emotional brain immediately adjacent to the like lust space and the care space so that it's a very simple for you to like walk through one door in your emotional brain, transition out of rage and into caring? Yeah, that's like way on the other side. They're like way on the other side. Exactly. Yeah. So, There's a thing called context switching cost, which started in computer programming and moved into like business. And now it's in everyday life that it actually does take time and energy to transition from one context to another, to switch from the brain state you were in at work into the brain state you want to be in when you were at home. And people can develop routines, habits, even rituals for transitioning. They're like, what state, which room am I in right now? Am I in the fear room? Am I in the loneliness room? Am I in the rage room? Am I in the caring room? And what do I do to get out of that space so that I can be free to move about my emotional floor plan and get to the space that I want to be in? So this is it. This is the magic right here. That's you're talking about. I've been looking for. How do we do that? How do you yeah. No, I've always said you can't do it. You can't walk home and do, you just can't do it. It's going to take you time. The fact that you're saying that is... It is going to take you time. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Context switching costs. It takes time and effort. You have to actually... You can't just like tell yourself to... In the same way, you can't tell yourself not to be stressed. You can't tell yourself you're not being chased by a lion. You can't just tell yourself, hey, stop being in your rage space and transition into your care space, transition into play. You have to do something that releases your body from that state. Physical activity is number one. Imagination can be a really helpful component too. You can make something. So whatever the thing, like if you are a woodcarver, if you are a knitter, crochet, you make something. Amelia writes songs oh. when she's in a feeling state. She writes a song about the feeling she is having. Wow. That's cool. And it helps. It's usually like a funny song. (laughs) It's awesome. About the things she is experiencing. Creative self-expression is another one of the, this is actually chapter one of burnout right now is like, what are the strategies that will actually help me to complete this stress cycle? So if you're in rage or fear, you are in stress. If you're in loneliness, you may also be in stress. One of the things we say over and over is that feelings are tunnels. You have to go all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end. Mm. You have to go through the rage. You can't just turn your turn around, turn your back on the rage and walk away from it. You have to go through it. The path to joy goes through the uncomfortable emotion that you're currently in. And I think one of the reasons people struggle with it is because it calls for a kind of surrender. 
acknowledging that you live in a mammalian body. And when it comes to you versus your mammalian body, your mammalian body wins every single time. And so you have to like listen to your body and let it tell you what it needs instead of trying to get your body to behave according to what your brain says is the right thing to do. All those things you were taught about like what the right thing to do is all the things you were taught were wrong and your body is and your loving partner are where you learn what's true. Ah, That makes so much sense from the, we were watching a different sex therapist who was talking about um, what was her explanation? Uh, Like if you're watching a rape scene and you get aroused, your brain and your body are different due to yeah. arousal non-concordance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you've talked about that as well. And, and I was, I was like, wow, yeah. this is all connecting. And, and if what, so a lot of people don't listen for years to the stories we tell them and the things we tell them to do, they won't listen. So they do listen to what not to do. What would you say is the number one thing not to do, not to force a connection or not to whatever that is when you come home and you, and you think, I, I think I need to connect with my wife. I think it's sexually. I think, I'm going to force something. I mean, what is the like the number one thing you shouldn't try to do when you're trying to connect, if there is a number one thing? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of number yeah. one things. <laughs> My ultimate number one piece of advice is only ever do things that bring pleasure to your body. Mm. You can't follow that rule until you know what pleasure feels like. And that's that's a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other. But when you can acknowledge, like, begin with non-erotic pleasure. Begin with pleasure that you have permission to feel. Notice what pleasure feels like and what it does to your body. And then begin practicing noticing the moments of pleasure. And move toward the things that give you pleasure and delight, rather than the things that numb the pain. Man. Man, I love that. I love that. A lot of... of a lot of warriors, you know, they drink to forget and, you know, or pass yep. out, drink to remember, pass out to forget. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. No adaptive health behaviors <laughs> to manage negative uh, I tried that. It doesn't work. Yep. Yeah. 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 <sighs> the excuses. I mean, here's the hard thing is it does work temporarily. Right. Yeah, right, right. Right. It does in the short run. What makes these strategies maladaptive is not that they don't work in the short run. It's that they uh, don't work in the wrong one and they increase the risk of other unwanted consequences. Yeah, over a 10-year period. Yeah, uh-huh. it's, uh, <laughs> it's issues. Unwanted it's fighting the excuses. I love this. I can't even believe we're, at, we're, we're already at the time we're at. I don't, you have I know, like three sorry. more pages of notes, as do I. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what we, what we hope and really sincerely hope is that you'll come and join us again and, and talk about this very important topic. Oh, I'd love to. One that we get probably some of the most calls about. And it's okay if people don't believe me right now. They will. They believe don't believe me. us either. It's it's a convincing a, game over and over and over again. You're going to have a spike again. in book sales after this for sure because yeah, everyone they, quietly goes to Amazon and like, come as you are. Okay, mm-hmm. burnout. Like, yep, I'll get both. And it arrives put, at 3 a.m. Like, I'll be yep. there getting it. <laughs> exactly. If you've had decades of being taught one thing, yes. listening to a podcast about it is not going to like no. change your life <laughs> immediately. That's not... A, I wish that were happening. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> It'd be so great. Would be Alas. rich putting yeah. out podcast <sighs> hour at a time, change just your fix life. Fix the world in about four just hours. Instantaneously. That's right. You're welcome. You know, as long as we get people thinking about it, I think we've won. You know, yeah. instead of putting Getting up a curious. wall, instead of putting up a wall and being judgmental, being curious about it, leaning in and, and, and asking questions like, "Whoa, how, how do I do that?" Yes, leaning into the discomfort and. The only way through is through. Showing them that it exists. It has been phenomenal spending time with you. I, Like I said, we have pages more here to go. I hope that we'll have all the links um, in this podcast notes with your books, some of your TED Talks that we've sent to our therapists. Like, have you seen this? This is amazing. Oh, and my, my podcast. There's only eight episodes, but it's like the most important topics. I, I Write love it. Write it down for us. Like, where can people find you and what, what works can they find? And then where yeah. can they go hear you? The Come As You Are podcast is from Pushkin Industries, available wherever you get your podcasts. I have a newsletter that's like kind of a, an advice column about sex about half the time and overall wellness the other half the time. And you can go to emilynagoski.com and sign up for the newsletter. It's totally free. Yes. Awesome. I just saw the newsletter to you. And I just did. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's good <laughs> stuff. All of your information. I think it's orgasms this week. Ooh. What? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I was going to click on it. We didn't have time. Oh my God, that's awesome! We, um, I'll show you. you have been <laughs> such an inspiration to us and our learning. And and Tom and I are very like research sciencey based too. So we love that you bring that element in. It helps us understand, and it has been 
really profound and powerful for us. So we're glad that we were able to bring you to our folks, encourage them to pick up your books, get on that newsletter, y'all, like today, go sign up for the newsletter. (laughs) And hopefully we'll have you back soon to chat with us some more. It was awesome speaking with you. This is a total pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, With the newsletter, you don't have to open up and ask questions. You can just read the answers. (laughs) Yes. So for all the fear ones out there, the newsletters are the way to go. You can start leaning in. Absolutely. Maybe I should like code all the subject headings as being like, this one is about how to fry meat. Yep. (laughs) Yep. How to cook red meat the best possible way. (laughs) Little peas in the brownies, like we like to say. That's for sure. Thank you so much, Emily. And hopefully we can have you again uh, soon or early in the next year and talk more about this because this is one of my favorite topics. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again. Thanks for listening to All Secure. Community matters now more than ever. So if you liked what you heard, please share, review, and subscribe. For assistance or to support our incredible warriors and their families, please visit us at allsecurefoundation.org. That's allsecurefoundation.org. Tune in next week to All Secure, and thanks again for listening. See you all then. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.